And so we all had cups the whole time. And so we were tasting things and like, no, that's fresh water. We don't want that. So we'd keep drilling, keep drilling, keep drilling. We're like, well, it's, we're going to hit around 300 feet. And right at 300 feet, um, it spewed out. Welcome to Appalachia Startup, stories of new ideas that eventually became thriving businesses in areas that most would consider a bad investment. I'm J.D. Belcher, and I started this podcast because I took the same path as a lot of these folks. I'm a former coal miner, and now I make films through my own production company called JJN Multimedia. I wanted to hear others speak of their journey to not only give new beginners hope, but to help me grow as a fellow entrepreneur. Nancy Bruns is an innovative thinker and an implementer of an industry that was 200 years in the making for her family. She decided to shelf her chef knife and partner with her brother, Lewis, to start J.Q. Dickinson Saltworks in the Canal Valley of West Virginia. She broke down the entire economic and passionate journey, as well as the ins and outs of drilling into an ancient ocean located under the hills of Appalachia. How cool is that? Two of my favorite things, salt and stories of salt. Enjoy. So this is a revival of a family business. Our, um, my ancestors started making salt here in the Canal Valley in 1817, and then my brother, Louis Payne, and I uh, revived the business in 2013. So we are making salt from the ancient Ipetus Ocean, which is trapped deep below the Appalachian Mountains. So we pump up brine and uh, solar evaporate it and um, crystallize it and hand harvest it. Well, so... What was you doing before this? What made you come up with the decision <laughs> to all of a sudden start the business? Uh, my first career uh, was a chef. Um, I worked in all aspects of the industry and food business and um, sold a restaurant in 2008 and then was really searching for the next chapter of my life. Um, at the same time, I really started learning more about my family history and I also got very interested in salts and started collecting salts from around the world. So my pantry was filling up with all sorts of um, different salts and cut colors, shapes, uh, crystal sizes, and I was really fascinated by it. And then when I discovered that our family had played a major role here in the Canal Valley in the industry, um, it was just one of those aha moments that I couldn't ignore. Right. How did that discovery happen? Did you do like a uh, one of those family tree websites or? <laughs> no, it was actually through my ex-husband, or my husband at the time, who uh, we sold our restaurant and then he went back to school and got his uh, master's degree in American history and really loved uh, history around salt. So he discovered a lot about uh, the Dickinson family and the Kanawha salt industry. So I was, of course, fascinated with that. And... Um, and then as I was kept collecting these salts, I thought, you know, why there's no salt being made in the Canal Valley. It's this historical industry. We need to bring it back. So it was, it was like a magnet that I couldn't get myself away from. Mm -hmm. And I just had to make salt. So. <laughs> right. So, you know, day one, was it kind of you know, figuring out as you went along, like, well, how does someone start a salt business? Did you Google how to start a salt business <laughs> or was it, was it trial by error? Or? Uh, my brother actually wanted to rename the company trial and error uh, <laughs> early on. I think he probably still does, but um, it really was a lot of trial and error. We 
you know, the basics are pretty simple. You have salty water, you evaporate it, you're going to get salt. So we knew that, but as we got into it, it got more complicated. And um, we realized there was a lot of science behind it and chemistry. And so we ended up hiring an intern from University of Charleston to come help us from their chemistry department. So he set up basically a lab where he was watching things, rate of crystallization versus depth of the beds and um, the, you know, the weather every day and what was really affecting it. And then we had to learn about the calcium content in the salt and the brine because that was something that was discoloring it. So there was, there was a lot to learn. So that was really helpful. Um, but we continue every day. We're adapting and changing and trying to be more and more efficient as we grow and want to produce more salt and there's more demand. Right. So the initial phase was data collecting. Yes. So we put our well in in um, May of 2013 and we spent the next four months doing data collection. So by the middle of September, late August, middle of September, we had our, our method down to produce the, the flavor and, and crystal that we wanted. And so then we started production for sale. Uh, you know, the initial phase when you have all these numbers in front of you, then it's kind of like, okay, what does this look like as far as a business model goes? Is that right? or or? Well, we um, did some models uh, early on with the with the brine and the salt, the salinity of it. So then you can kind of figure out how much salt you're going to get per gallon of, of brine. And then you think about the process and how much salt you end up with um, per day or week or month and through your whole cycle. And then, you know, then you have to put a price on it. And um, so basically our, our cost is in the labor uh, once our well was in, the cost is definitely in, you know, filling tanks, filling beds, moving the brine from bed to bed, from uh, evaporation to crystallization to uh, then we have to sift it and clean it and then getting it in a jar. Mm -hmm. So it's about a six-week process. And so then we kind of based our, our price per pound on the amount of labor that we have in it. Mm -hmm. plus our supplies. You mentioned the well. How did you figure out the best place in the region to kind of put that, you know, I'm assuming you put a well in, pull the water out of the land, you know, we do. And start the process. So how did you decide where to put that? Well, there are actually eight wells here on the property uh, that were used by our ancestors. So we knew that we would hit salt water and we had actually seen, um, old well logs my brother found so he knew exactly what we'd be going through as we drilled and we hit the brine exactly where that well log said so it wasn't a matter of okay we're gonna put it here as opposed to 20 feet away or you know we've got to go another half mile or something we knew that malden was kind of the the basin of where the this salty water um sits so that was not a concern, um, finding, finding mm -hmm. the salt brine level. So. Mm -hmm. the, so the, the information, where did you go? Is it available at the library or, you know, where do you find, I'm assuming there's a map or, uh, you know, where do you find out that information? So we partnered with, um, company Gaddy Engineering that does a lot of geological work and they, um, they helped us with that as well because. Because we're also uh, the Chemical Valley here in the Kanawha Valley, 
Um, and those chemical companies came because of this brine, because they could get chlorides and calcium products and different things right here. Um, but there have been some, some leaks and spills. So it was really important to us to make sure that this um, area was not contaminated in any way. So they helped us do research on that. And I don't know exactly how they did it, but they worked with the Department of um, Environmental Protection and they worked with other geologists. And when um, we tested the brine to make sure it was, was fine and it was all, all clear. It's so deep underground, it's pretty protected anyway. Did you have kind of a, a striking gold mentality? Like, oh, there it is, or, you know. Was it was just- very much like that. We, uh, when the well was going in, um, we, we had a water well driller drill it for us. And um, he would go through, you know, we went through coal and slate and uh, limestone. And um, we hit fresh water. And so we all had cups the whole time. And so we were tasting things and like, no, that's fresh water. We don't want that. So he'd keep drilling, keep drilling, keep drilling. We're like, we're going to hit around 300 feet. And right at 300 feet, um, it spewed out um, just like you would see in an oil well. And we all had our cups under it and um, we tasted it and it was salty. We're like, we got it. That's fantastic. Well, it sounds like an easy start overall but uh, you know i'm sure there's more that went into it than than that but then you know oh yeah how did you start figuring out like okay to produce this you know jar of salt uh it costs this much like are these a bunch of numbers put together like you mentioned is mostly labor uh was there a big initial investment when it comes to equipment or um the main investment was the well actually drilling the well and getting it cased and putting a pump in it. And then we had um, the next major investment was in our branding and marketing. Um, So, and then you buy jars and labels and then design for those. So, you know, I think with any business, you write a business plan before you open it and you hope it's all a guess, but it's an educated guess and you hope that you're pretty close, but you know it's going to change. And, of course, this business totally changed. You know, the process is much more labor-intensive than I originally forecast. Um, you know, the, the way we have to clean the salt takes a lot of time, and we want to make sure we're putting the best product forward, and that is time-consuming. So we have a higher labor cost than I originally forecast, but, um, you know, we've made up with that in other ways as we've gotten more efficient right and efficiency like that initial investment did you you know did you all stick your neck out there and get a loan or you know where did where did the funds come from um so we had we we self-funded it my brother and i had some money to invest and then uh gaddy engineering came in with us as a partner and so they donated you know, their time and their resources were their investment in it. And so that was really helpful because that would have been very expensive. And then we have gotten some loans over, you know, as we've grown, uh, we've worked with National Capital Investment Fund. They're, they're really great with small businesses and, um, you know, local banks have been really helpful right? as well. That's awesome. Um, okay. So did you decide to have a storefront from the beginning or were you going to start selling things, you know, online or, or kind of what was the initial thought? The initial thought was to sell, to have an e-commerce site and then to sell wholesale to restaurants and retailers. And then we got so much interest with 
the business that people started coming in and wanting tours. It wasn't actually something that was even on my radar that people would want to come see what we were doing, but they're fascinated by it. So we've now as we've grown, we've adapted to having the public here. And then we started, you know, just on a counter. We had a few little jars of salt and now we're a full storefront with Appalachian products from the region. So um it's been it's been a fun growing process. Right. The initial, like, you know, when you decided to start this, why did you think it was important to start something like this here? Like, you know, is Appalachia special to you? Is West Virginia, like, you know, special to you, close to you? Or, you know, what, oh, was, yeah. what went into that decision? So I'm a seventh generation native of the Kanawha Valley and um, West Virginia is deep in my blood. So um, I've, even though I... Grew up here, uh, went away to school, got married, lived all over the country. Um, but I always had a draw to come back home. And um, once I learned about the family business here, and you know, when we moved here um, in the early 1800s, I just thought, you know, this is the perfect time to be starting this back. You know, as the coal industry was waning. And here we were reinventing an old industry, and it just seemed like it was kind of a, a great answer. And to be back home with my people, and you know, I couldn't ask for better uh, support from the people in the state. They love us, love us, love us, and they're so good at sharing our product all over the world that I feel like I have a whole marketing team of ambassadors out there so it's great and i don't I, you wouldn't find that in a lot of other states that's a good point do you think that's part of that when people see something different like oh a salt place you know right here in the in the canal valley like do you think that they latch on to things like that when they see someone putting their neck out there and starting a new thing i think definitely so especially in west virginia where you know we have a lot of bad news here but we also have these glimmers of light and that's what we need to latch on to. And we have people who are sticking their neck out and trying to make a difference and build a, a great business and employ people. And, um, you know, I, we're just trudging along doing our thing and trying to be the best we can be. And there are a lot of businesses out there in West Virginia that are doing the same thing. But I think that West Virginians in general are more apt to, um, be drawn to local business and Appalachia in general and, and really promote it when they can. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more question about branding before we talk about the location. So you mentioned branding being an important step in the early days. Where did the knowledge of that come from? Because you all are branded and have been branded extremely well. Um, how important is that, you know, when solidifying your brand? Uh, on taking those materials seriously? I think it's extremely important because you have to get people to pick up your product on a shelf and um, you can't just slap on a homemade label and have the, have people think it's a professional product. And so uh, I partnered with Mesh Design and Development. That's a local company, um, Megan Bullock's company. And she um, and I really had a have, and we still use them, have a great relationship. And so she understood my vision really well and was able to put that into our labeling and marketing materials. And I think that that has helped us 
considerably. It's a huge investment and it's painful because you're not getting the money back right away, but it makes a huge difference. Definitely. And you can, and you can, you can tell for sure with all your, your marketing materials. Uh, so this beautiful location here, um, how, how did this happen? Like, did you all build this building we're setting in or was it here already or? Uh, it was here already. So we're actually sitting on the Dickinson family farm property that has been owned by the Dickinson family since 1832. Um, but this particular part of the property was developed as Terra Salis, which was a uh, garden center and uh, landscape design for residential um, use. So um, this building was built by um, some cousins of mine for that, um, for that business, Mary Price Rattery. And um, so we came in here and we cordoned off a little part of the building to have our processing in here. And then as we grew bigger, um, Tara Salas, uh, Bill Mills, who was the um, manager and director of that, started giving us a little more space as he uh, didn't need it. And then we moved into um, the big greenhouse in the back. He said, I'm not using that anymore. So, you know, it was a great partnership as he was changing his business model. We were able to take over some of the infrastructure. So it, it couldn't have been a better partnership there. And so Terrasalis has since closed. Um, and then we've taken over the whole property. Gotcha. So what all is on the property exactly? Is there one place you do salt production or is there a couple different stages? Yeah. So we have four sun houses, we call them, because we're not growing anything green. We're using the sun to um, evaporate and crystallize our salt. And then we have a processing building uh, that we built uh, three years ago that um, is where we package and clean and, and do everything that needs to be done with the salt as well as shipping and receiving and all of that. And then this building we're sitting in is our shop. Uh, we also have a commercial kitchen where we make our caramel sauce and um, we do events here too. So we have uh, beautiful gardens and um, covered spaces for events outside. So we do a lot of weddings and farm to table dinners and private family reunions. And it's not very active right now uh, in the middle of a pandemic, but um, we hope we'll get back to full levels of events. So Right. And, uh, you know, initially you didn't start off offering all of these services, obviously. So how did you branch out? Like, did you find that you had the capacity to take on more ideas or was it a slow transition? Um, you know, I'm one of those people that I have to be told to turn my brain off because it just keeps churning out ideas and, you know, I'd never stop thinking about things. So, you know, I had the idea early on uh, when we're on this beautiful property to start having uh, farm-to-table dinners and featuring local chefs who are using our salt and also uh, supporting local growers in West Virginia to really highlight their work as well as the produce that's coming from here. And then we give a portion of those proceeds back to a food farmer healthy lifestyle initiative. Um, so we started that and they're really popular. So they grew and grew. And then once Terra Salis closed down, um, I saw the opportunity that we're going to have to take care of this property on our own because they were, taking care of everything for us, which was great. Like, okay, we've, we've got to pivot and, you know, what are we going to do? So let's 
let's market ourselves as an event and destination. And so we hired event staff and um, started marketing for weddings and things. And it really through word of mouth, it's grown. So it, you know, I think in any business, you learn to adapt to the opportunities around you and you always have to have them on your radar. Um, but it makes sense with what we're doing and to bring people here. And it, it gives more visibility to our salt products as well as our salt business gives visibility to our event space. Right. Do you think your previous experience, you know, being a chef, did it bring a lot to the game when it comes to, you know, obviously salt has a lot to do with food, but also you knowing the event industry and having all this experience in other areas, did that help? It has helped considerably. So our restaurant was not only a restaurant, it was a gourmet retail and wine store as well. So I had a lot of knowledge of the retail side as well as the restaurant side. And then I did, I handled all the catering for our business. So I knew about events and weddings and all of that stuff. So um, it's, it's melded really well with my current role is, you know, now I'm making a, an ingredient for restaurants. Um, but I know how to talk to chefs. I know how the kitchens work. I know what it takes for a chef to actually bring a new ingredient in. It's not really that easy to get in the door with them because they don't want to, um, you know, train their staff on a new ingredient once you've got your system down. So in something like salt, where it's very tactile and you're grabbing it with your fingers and our salt feels different and you're going to pick up a different amount than say a Morton's kosher salt or diamond crystal. So you, you have to help them adapt. And, um, but we've had a great reception from chefs. So. And all the varieties, like I'd say the flavor profile of you knowing what tastes good and what kind of, you know, ingredients are needing in certain dishes, I'm sure. Right. So we've grown, you know, not just through our salt line, but um, interestingly, through uh, going to trade shows and things, we had to find a way for people to taste the salt and to get them to come to our table and say, hey, taste the salt from West Virginia. Um, and we were having a tough time getting them to come. So I said, you know what? Salted caramel is so popular. I'm going to start making our my dad's recipe for caramel sauce. So I um, started making caramel and we'd give people a spoonful of caramel and salt and they'd come right over. And um, people love the caramel so much, they started demanding that we make that. So then we grew into a whole line of caramel sauces. So then I could use my chef skills to develop that into a commercial product. And now we have uh, three other flavors total of four flavors so right fantastic okay so getting in more of the the process um i know nothing about salt and how you make it i know i love it that's about it how you know how would you basically exp explain the process of salt from start to finish so our salt is made differently than uh, most other salts in the world because we're using this underground brine source that we have a well to draw it up. So um, all salt, I consider all salt sea salt, no matter where they came from, because they come, salt is a natural mineral and it's either mined or evaporated and it um, comes from an ancient sea or, or a surface ocean, current surface ocean. So um, our brine comes up out of the ground. We put it into tanks 
uh, where we let that brine settle. There are a lot of minerals in it, and there's also um, a lot of iron in it. So we have to let that iron oxidize. Uh, it gets heavy and settles to the bottom of the tank. Um, and then we feed that clarified brine off and into our sunhouses, uh, where it evaporates um, then uh, crystallizes. So it's about a six-week process from well to jar, mm. but we let Mother Nature do the work. Uh, we actually consider our salt, um, even though it's a mineral, but we consider it an agricultural product because we're pulling it from the earth and we let Mother Nature do the work and then we, then we harvest it. To, to dry it out, do you have like heaters in place or is it a certain temperature or is it just... Nope, we're at the whims of Mother Nature. So in our sun houses, um, you know, the temperature outside may be 80 degrees on a sunny day. But in that sun house, it's, it could be north of 150 degrees. So do you insulate it somehow? No, it's not insulated. It's, um, we have some fans that move air mm. because as the water is evaporating out of it, we want to move that uh, humid air out of the sun house. Um, otherwise, it would just condensate back into the brine. Gotcha. And then this, what does it look like? Is it like a big, a big brick? Or is it in a pan? No, it's or? in a, it's in crystal form. Oh, so okay. it, it pretty big crystals. Mm -hmm. um, so we uh, harvest it. We have squeegees and scrapers, and then we we scrape it up into a big scoop and put it in a bucket and let it let the brine drain out for a day, mm -hmm. and then we hope that brine will crystallize some more. So, like the different flavors, like ramp salt, for instance. How do you do? How do you incorporate that? So we have foragers that um, pick the ramps for us in the spring, and they'll bring them to us either already dehydrated or we'll dehydrate them. Um, then we put them in a food processor with some of our salt, and then we, uh, you know, we have ratios that we use, and then we uh, process it together so the salt picks up the flavor, and then you get the little specks of green. Perfect. So foragers, like, does it comes from multiple sources, or do you have certain vendors we you have, go to? Uh, no, they're not official vendors. <laughs> so we just use whoever has ramps, has a ramp patch, and is willing to uh, to share those ramps with us. Actually, one of my woodworking vendors um, has uh, kids who uh, I pay to get the ramps. They love their spring money. I pay him. So they pick them for us. And then when he delivers um, some of his wood crafts, then um, the kids bring in bags of ramps for me. Right. So they're really excited to be a part of business. How fun is that? Yeah, that's way better than a paper route. Um, <laughs> so, okay. What, is there a season? Like, obviously, you know, I don't, I don't even know if ramps grow a certain time of the year and that's it. Like, do you have a Are certain Are you from season? West Virginia? I am, but listen, <laughs> I'm, I'm, sorry. I'm West Virginian by uh, pretty much driver's license. And, and I used to be a coal miner, but I was not a very good one. So, yeah, I try to be, I try to fake it when I go elsewhere. Like, oh, yeah, ramps, they're amazing. I know everything about them. And then when we get into details, that's where I change the subject. So, okay. so <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, so, I'm completely green on everything uh, when it comes to this. So, yeah. So, ramps are grown. Uh, they come up, they're really one of spring's earliest um, plants. They come up. Um, when it, we have a, a string of a really sunny, warm days. So this year, the, the season was early. It was um, 
we got our big load uh, right as the pandemic hit in mid-March and kept getting them through the end of March. And uh, they were still growing through mid-April, but they really have a short season. So that's why people are crazy for them when they come up and they eat them all right. the time. So we, we can't get any more once, once they're gone. So we try and get a lot um, in the spring, and then we can spread it out throughout the year when we make the salt. Makes sense. And now are you at a point to where you kind of know how much you're going to sell of what and when, or has it consistently been a a snowball effect, which I know this year is a little different, um, you know, when it comes to the pandemic, but are you able to measure kind of what you're going to do? We try, (laughs) we give it our best effort. Um, we know that certain times of year are busier for different types of businesses. So you know, January, February, March are pretty slow for wholesale sales. Um, then uh, our retailers really pick up in the spring. And so um, we know that that's coming. And then obviously Christmas is a really busy time. So we try our best to to gauge what, we, what we're going to sell and when. And then I've got a great manager who's very good at, you know, the details and making sure we're staying stocked of all the different products. And, you know, we're smoking salt. We have two different smoke salts and then other different flavors. And um, so we, we do our best. And, and also we're constricted, constrained by the, by the weather. So our salt making season runs from March to um, November, roughly. Um, because then just like a lot of, um, snowbirds, they go, sun goes to Florida for the summer and leaves West Virginia. So we, we can't make salt here in the winter. Right. Um, so if we run out, if we run out of salt in December, we're in real trouble until March, but we, we've been able to keep supply pretty strong. So you kind strong. of build up an inventory and, yep. and make sure it stays stocked. Makes, makes total sense. So, um, how did you find people? to buy in like and how did you start building this organizational structure like how did you find people you could trust and they did a great job and did you have any kind of value system you would go by or in terms of hiring employees yeah like when you started branching out and teaching this to someone else did you write out processes or uh we have an operations manual that we keep but you know, I would interview people and I would, one, you want to look for somebody who has a work ethic. I think that's the, the very first thing. Um, somebody who wants to come to work every day and will work hard and get the job done. Um, so that's number one. The next thing I look for is somebody who's organized and detail-oriented. Because in a business like this, the small details are really important and I'm a detail person. And if I have somebody working for me, who's not, who doesn't see when there's a problem, then I have a problem. So I want people who are going to pick up on that too. And I've found, um, great employees who, you know, love the business and, uh, buy into it and, and work hard for it mm-hmm. and want to see it succeed. Do you have different buckets of the business? Like here's the, the, I'll just say growing team. Here's the, you know, here's the business manager, obviously. Here's the the store team, you know, different things. We do. So we have um, our my operations manager, Megan, um, oversees all of the salt production and um, shipping and receiving and inventory management and all of that. And I have an events team. 
And um, the events team handles the the shop as well and does tours and then the special events on the property. And then I have um, a sales manager, Abby, who does um, all our wholesale sales and looks for new accounts and um, handles all of our orders. Um, she's also a trained chef, and she makes all our caramel sauces. Well, that's perfect. Yep. So I was going to ask you about your sales process. Is it? Do you find word of mouth being the main thing right now, or you know what helped it grow over the years? Word of mouth has been a huge um, push for our sales, and then you know we go to trade shows more now. Well, we had to cancel two this year, but uh, we will go to trade shows again. I feel sure. Um, and we found some good niches um, where we find the right type of, of buyer. So that's helpful. And then word of mouth has been a huge, huge help. And then we'll reach out to people cold who we just feel like their model, their business model works with our product and we'd be a good addition to them. And um, we've also expanded our product line to not only include our products, but um, the products we source for our Appalachian Mercantile uh, business, which is a subscription box business where we curate Appalachian um, foods, uh, home goods, and crafts and send them out monthly or seasonally. So we actually include all of those products at a wholesale price to our retailers, and that has been very successful because the more you can um, ship to a customer, the fewer phone calls they have to make or the fewer emails they have to send. And so we're really finding that that's a valuable part of our business. Awesome. And you mentioned uh, the type of buyer. Like, what do you mean by that in the terms of the salt business? Like, what is the perfect buyer? Uh, I, and I knew, you know, I know it could have a range, but you know, what do you what do you mean by that? when you say, you know, perfect type of buyer? Oh, we want a buyer who cares about uh, locally produced foods, who wants to support small business, who um, wants natural foods, who um, who's not a big industry. Uh, the mom and pop retail store is our favorite place to go. Um, or, you know, the mom and top, pop retail uh, e-commerce site. So I... And then you have a relationship with them and those people are actually willing to spend the time to tell our story because it does a lot of people with salt and you can look at some ads we do on Facebook and see the comments that people make about, you know, a bag of salt for $28 a pound. And they have all kinds of funny things to say about that. They think they're hysterical, but, um, right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't get the story. No, no, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, they don't, they're not looking behind the, the, behind the scenes. But if you have a retailer that really cares about the products they're selling and they talk to their customers and say, hey, you got to try this really great salt and they give them a taste of it, you can really tell a difference. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what we want. Right. Makes sense. And in Appalachia, especially the story is just impor- as important in marketing as what it looks like. You exactly. Know, how it's made, where it come from. So there's all this, you know, kind of trend, I w- would say, in marketing about having an authentic brand. And people are trying to create authentic brands out of nothing. And then they create this kind of storyline and they're drawing on, you know, who knows what. But you, if you look hard enough, it's just a new business starting and they really don't have anything behind it. And they've got a good marketing team 
that's trying to put the story together. But our story is over 200 years old, and there's nothing more authentic than making salt right here in the same place our ancestors did for seven generations. So, you know, we can't, people can't compete with that. And, you know. Yeah, that was before marketing even kind of was a term. So, (laughs) so, yeah, it was. So we have a story card that we send out with every order that talks about, you know, our seven generations of history and, you know, the importance of the salt and. And the history in the valley. It's not just our family. It's a shared history. If anybody who has a connection to the Canal Valley knows somebody who worked in the salt industry. Right. And I guess now we can get to, obviously, it wasn't, you know, outside looking in, someone could just be like, oh, well, they just started it and, and, you know, it just took off and they didn't even really have to, you know, do anything. But obviously, running a business, there's a lot more to it than what it looks like from the outside. So is there anything that you've learned, especially that you didn't realize seven years ago? Like, you know, uh, have there been, you know, tough times where you just wanted to throw up your hands and say, I'm done or, or oh, anything yeah. like that? Uh, there haven't been as many as you would think, but there have been a couple of very challenging times. Um, one, uh, Two and a half years ago, we had a fire right before Christmas in 2018. And um, that was a scary thing. And it took out, you know, 70% of our inventory and um, right before our busiest time of year. And uh, then we were lucky enough to be in the Wall Street Journal gift guide right after that. And um, we were getting slammed with like 200 orders a day, and which was great. But we didn't have product, so we are just, it was a scramble, and it was a time of year where we couldn't just turn on the spigots and make salt, And um, but we figured it out. We figured it out, and uh, it actually made us a stronger company in the end, and, um, you know, you learn. You band together, and you, the employees were great, and they never complained, and we were wiping soot off of things and seeing what we could save, and... Um, and, you know, you get through it. And then now we're in the middle of a, a pandemic. So, you right. know, it's our e-commerce customers have really rallied around us and we're doing lots of sales online. And now we're starting to get people back to come visit. But, you know, our event business has gone to nothing and we've had retailers and restaurants that are closed. And, you know, so that's a challenge, too. And so how do we pivot to take advantage of what opportunities are out there and kind of, you know, what, what are we doing different? And, you know, I don't want to, I want to keep my employees employed. And so. Yeah. And when things like this happen, like the fire or the pandemic, like how do you put on your confident face and walk into the store and just show everyone, like, I know exactly what we're going to do. Or do you kind of just have a meeting where it's like, I'll take any ideas, you know, (laughs) that are thrown on the table. Like, do you, how do you assess and then approach a, a fix? Well, we have been having meetings talking about different things, and um, I try and meet with my managers weekly to, you know, even when things are good, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. And then, you know, my mind is always working, okay, what do we need to do? I'm always looking in the future, looking for that opportunity, and then I'll share it with the employees and say, okay, this is what I think we should do. Give me your input. Um, We had a a meeting about reopening to the public. Okay, what's going to happen when we bring the public back in here? What do we need to do about masks and gloves and 
creating distance and that, and that kind of thing. So I wanted, because they're working in different areas than I am on a daily basis. So their input was very important to me. And I also want to make sure I'm keeping them safe. So, um, you know, it's, I'd call it a team effort, but I'm also definitely a leader and it's my vision and they need to, to follow that. But I, I want, it's important that they buy into it so they can carry it out. I can't carry it out by myself. Perfect. How important is that collaboration? Like instead of just coming in, micromanaging everything and then telling people, this is how you do it. I don't want to hear anything else. Right. It's, you know, they have good insight into things and that, you know, why isn't that working? Well, you wanted it this way, but it's not possible to have it that way. So, okay, then we work through it. Say, thanks for the input. Let's, we're going to reassess that and we're going to do it this way and try this. That's why, you know, it's trial and error. Any business is trial and error. You hope, you have to have a good, strong vision, but you also have to be flexible enough to to adjust because nothing is goes like you planned. Right. And having that vision, I, which I can relate a lot to that, it's, it's so fulfilling to know like, hey, this is what's possible, but other people in your life may be kind of terrified because they're unsure of what... So, you know, are you kind of sure about your vision and like, oh, no, it's going to be fine. You know, we're going to just do it and it's going to be great. Or, you know, are you kind of nervous along the way or? You know, with this business, I was not. And I had a lot of people say to me, you're going to make salt. And doesn't Morton's do that? And why would you want to do that? And, you know, you're going to be too expensive. And I had a lot of doubters out there, but I... I knew in my gut that it was going to be good because the vision was, it was so strong and I could see the brand and I could see the market. And, um, I knew that we could capture this, this niche. And, um, you know, there are times I had to change it a little and adjust it, but I could really see, you know, how we could add new products. And I can still see that, how we can grow our product line and, and keep keep growing it. Salt goes in everything, so it's great to add, you know, like we have potato chips made with our salt and we have hot sauce with our salt in it and uh, peanuts with our salt on it. So, you know, it's, it's endless, mm-hmm. the things we can do. And it's exciting to partner with these other producers. And so you really... Just have to keep building on that same strong vision, and then you you make it richer. Right. And speaking on the pandemic, which um, I'm curious about this, like my experience with it was, it was everything's fine, and then four days later, every video production shoot we had for the next three months was essentially canceled. Um, so what was your experience in the initial first few days in the salt industry? Um. You know, it happened so quickly that it was just kind of crazy. It's it's it still seems at times that I'm in some kind of strange apocalyptic movie. But and I'm just not waking up. But it's um you know, sales were good the first ten days of March. Say our wholesale sales were great. The next five days, there was nothing. And um it's like, oh my gosh. And then you start hearing about everybody closing down and and the, the business just went away. And um it was it was scary. And I had to lay off my whole staff and said, We're not gonna have any money. I'm not gonna be able to pay you. 
So I wanted them to, you know, get on unemployment as quickly as possible and try and just get, you know, things pulled together and, okay, you're in survival mode and then now what's our next step? Right. And so that's when we turned to e-commerce and um, they're huge supporters out there. So, and this is, this may be a tough question and you don't have to answer it, but you know, seeing your baby, this business and seeing the relationships you've created with your staff, what was that like when you realized that you had to make that tough choice? Obviously you have your, you're all buried into this and then you got to look at these people you see almost every day and just, I can't, we just can't do it. What did that feel like? Oh, that was hard. It was really, really hard. It makes me tear up now, but it, you know, you, I knew that I had to um, pare it down to the bone immediately in order to preserve it for the long run. And um, I knew that people could get unemployment that could support them. And, you know, the government came out with the, the extra checks and the extra unemployment money. So I knew they'd be okay. Um, and it is like a baby. It is my, it's, it's a child of mine that I've, Every day I nurture it and sometimes I, I, I have never hated this business, but you know, you don't hate your child either, but you get frustrated with them. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, you get frustrated with it and sometimes you just have to walk away and give it a little space, but um, you figure it out and you care so deeply about it that you, um, you find the answers. So, you know, we're going to be okay. And luckily the government came up with some good, support systems for us, which we've taken advantage of. And um, that's been really, really helpful as we get back on our feet. Perfect. And winding down, kind of someone out there, you know, who maybe they're in a job that they're kind of getting burnt out. I'd imagine, you know, that was part of the initial phase was, I really want to create something, you know, like what would you say to someone out there who really doesn't necessarily have the confidence yet to take that plunge and do something in an area that everyone thinks they're in completely insane to do? <laughs> you know, I think there are a lot of great ideas out there and that 90% of them people aren't willing to take the leap on. So, um, but having the great idea is a far, is very distant from actually having a successful business. And I think you you have to take your idea and develop it and spend the time to um, grow that idea and write your business plan and you can get templates and it takes you through everything you need to think about with the business. And if you're not willing to do that, then you shouldn't start a business because it makes you answer the hard questions. It makes you come up with the projections and the pro formas and the you know, who are your markets? How are you going to price it? What are you willing to put into it? What it's going to cost? And you need to do that. And if all of that works out well and you can find the funding either through a loan or you put your own money into it, it's worth taking the risk on because it's so satisfying to build a business and to, you know, employ people and to build a product that, that's meaningful. Beautiful. And last question, if you had to narrow it down, what's your favorite part about what you've done? Like, is it, is it just the whole experience? Is it, or do you not reflect that much and kind of realize what you've, you've built over the years? 
I don't reflect on it in that way, but I think the most satisfying thing for me about this business is coming to work on this land where my ancestors were for so many generations. And you can definitely feel that power of that history and the legacy and the heritage of the the other business. And, you know, family is very important to me. And, you know, we have other family businesses that have that are continuing on. And so to be part of reviving that and uh, bringing that back and being able to come to work here, my stars are aligned. I'm in the perfect place and I hope nobody takes me away from it. So it's just a, it's a really happy place for me to be. Nancy, you are salt shakers down, one of the smartest and overall coolest people I've met during this podcast journey. Thank you for sitting down with us and walking us through your amazing accomplishment. You can find out more about JQ Dickinson Salt Works by visiting their storefront in Malden, West Virginia, or online at jqdsalt.com. Also, make sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram. Appalachia Startup is a bi-weekly podcast, so be sure to check back for more stories of entrepreneurship. Like us on Facebook and Instagram and support the show by grabbing a sticker from our online store at AppalachianStartup.com. Review our podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud as well. We are on Patreon. You can support the show there and allow us to showcase more businesses in Appalachia. Stay tuned for more stories of underdogs on the rise.